Hey listeners, thanks for dropping in. I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. Welcome back to Buried Motives. We're glad you're joining us this week. Absolutely, we are. We do really appreciate you guys tuning in. And I am super excited to hear this second part of this case. Oh, believe me, we are going to get into it. But before that, I just wanted to point out that the beginning of October is usually when we would bring you a Thanksgiving-themed case, because in Canada, this is when we celebrate our harvest. Last year, I brought you the case of Joel Guy Jr. and the year before that, Paul Marriage. However, two weeks ago, as Melissa stated, I shared with you the case of Larry Rains and promised that I would tell you his brother's case next. So this is like my non-two-parter, two-parter. I'm still so shocked that two brothers grew up to become serial killers independently of one another. But before we dive into that, in the spirit of Thanksgiving, since I'm not bringing a Thanksgiving-themed episode... We would like to express our gratitude for each one of you who listen to us week after week. We are so grateful that you're sticking this out with us. Yeah, we think we have the best listeners of all. We want to give a shout out to two of our most recent reviewers. Thank you, Mayra0027. And thank you to K underscore Ormi. We are truly grateful for your reviews. We really do appreciate it. And even if you just have a review in your heart for us, we appreciate that too. It's what keeps us going in this two-woman show. (laughs) Totally. But we are thankful that we get to do this every week and bring you these cases. We sure appreciate you. We love you. And we hope you'll keep listening. But on to dual dirtbags, Christy. Come on. I've had to wait two weeks for this. Let's go. (laughs) Okay. I'm going to deliver. Don't you worry. Two weeks ago, we discussed Larry. Today, we're going to discuss his brother, Danny. And he was the older one. Yes. Because they grew up in the same home, there will be some overlap, but I promise to make that part brief, and I will be focusing more on Danny's experiences this time. Even though people do grow up in the same home, your experiences can be completely different because of the way you view it. Oh, for sure. But with the dirtbag dad that they have, it's hard to view it any other way, I think. That being said, if you haven't listened to Larry's episode, I highly recommend listening to both. There are some things I will present today pertaining to Larry that I was saving for this case. These two dirtbags were brothers, so there will naturally be some interconnectedness between the two cases. And this case will fill in some blanks in Larry's episode, primarily after he was incarcerated. Does he encourage his brother to become a serial killer? (laughs) You know I'm not going to answer that yet. (laughs) Danny Arthur Raines was born on October 20th, 1943. He was the second born of four children. First his older sister was born, then him, then Larry, and then his little sister. He grew up in Kalamazoo, Michigan, and just like his brother, he did not have a loving childhood. The fun thing about doing this two-parter is I get to say Kalamazoo a lot again. (laughs) It's such a fun word. Kalamazoo, Michigan. Yep. Danny's mother did her best despite being married to a monster. Her husband could not support the family on the wage he earned working as a gas station attendant, so she worked the afternoon shift at a paper factory. Danny's mother was described as being disorganized and kind of frazzled. What mother with four children isn't frazzled? That is true. (laughs) 
Danny's father, though, was an abusive alcoholic. So who can honestly blame her for struggling? Money was tight, yet her husband would purchase alcohol to keep his addiction satisfied. He would beat her and get into fights with other grown men. Physical abuse wasn't really reported towards the children, but he would fly into a mad rage, yelling and destroying their furniture. So if he laid a hand on them or not, he was still abusive. And I honestly have a hard time believing that he didn't hit his kids. It would have been just a house of terror. It totally would have. You would have lived in fear of not knowing what was going to happen next. All of the time. Regardless, the children were still beaten, even if indirectly by his hand. If you remember from the last case, this dirtbag would force Danny and Larry to physically fight one another. And not just once in a while, they had to fight for almost everything they got. And it was full-on vicious fights. Sounds like a recipe for disaster. It totally is. Their father was said to bully the kids and would get angry and aggressive at the drop of a hat. This would have been a horrible way to grow up. As you said, these children's flight-or-fight responses had to have been constantly firing. I imagine you would just always be on edge. It would be so difficult. It would. And then often what happens is those kids strike out then first or feel that need to to protect themselves. It's hurt someone or be hurt. Mm -hmm. And they have a high threat bias, which is so sad. Mm -hmm. Anything, even when it isn't a threat, is perceived as a threat. And I wonder if their father had that. I don't know anything about his upbringing, but it was said that he would get upset by the smallest little infractions. Interesting. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't doubt that their father could have grown up in a similar way. It's one of those tragic cycles that does repeat quite often. Yes. Danny's father also forced the children to drink alcohol for his amusement and would make fun of and scare the kids on a regular basis. He sounds like he was a total demon. Isn't that what you do, Christy? I do. (laughs) And don't you get a real big kick out of making them scream? I do. (laughs) Especially around Halloween. Yes, which is coming up soon. (laughs) But I don't think I'm in the same league as this guy. No, not at all. (laughs) The boys grew up close but also kind of hated one another. Although Danny was two years older than Larry, Larry admitted to abusing his brother. He later said, quote, I used to hit Danny with boards, throw knives at him, shoot him with bows and arrows, and crap like that. What? He actually shot him with a bow and arrow? Yeah. Not just like shoot an arrow at him, but actually shot him with an arrow. He said shoot him with bows and arrows, so I don't know if he meant I actually hit him, but I imagine he probably did. Wow, that's a little bit more than just beating up on your brother. Exactly. But I am pretty sure that this type of torment went both ways. Their extreme behavior was rewarded by their father and not stopped by any means. So when I said they fought viciously, they absolutely fought viciously. It makes me question how they even survived long enough to grow into adulthood. I feel like we have all experienced sibling rivalry, but never did I shoot a bow at my brother or throw a knife at my sister. I can see how that relationship wasn't a healthy one. No, it goes beyond your regular sibling relationship. When Danny was 10 years old, his father left the family and moved to Florida to start a new life with a new woman. Sadly, my guess is he abused her as well and anyone else he came into contact with. Danny and his little brother decided to go see their father when they were teenagers. Despite how horrible he treated them, they still yearned for him as a father. That's just a biological need, I think. Oh, it absolutely is. 
they had never received his love or approval. They made the long trip to Florida and were greeted with their father saying to them, quote, Get out of here. I never want to see you again. What? Mm-hmm. He couldn't even be civil? Nope. Just get out of here. I don't want to see you again. What a dirtbag. That's not even misinterpreting the rejection. That is full-blown in your face. I don't care about you. Get out of my life. Wow. And this experience really affected both of the boys. No kidding. Yeah. I can't even understand why was he so angry at them? He just wanted a new life and didn't want interference from his old life. I don't think he ever even cared about them. How could he have? But you wouldn't treat a stranger that way. Well, he was said to fight with a lot of people. I think he was just a massive dirtbag. It sounds like it. Very selfish. Just, you're not serving me. I can't get anything from you. I moved on with this new woman. Get out of here. How do you not feel any connection to your children? Right. Their two high school boys have made this trip to Florida to see you, and that's how you treat them. That is so sad. Mm -hmm. In the spirit of competition, Danny and Larry dated the same girl in high school, Kathy. Not Paula, like many reports named her as. Kathy genuinely liked both boys and would go back and forth between them, but nothing too serious with either of them at first. But Danny ends up with her, right? Yes, he does. However, rumor has it that Kathy was actually leaning towards pursuing a more serious relationship with Larry, not Danny. Danny was outgoing, but she was drawn to Larry's quieter side. If you listen to Larry's episode, you know that after being arrested for stealing a car, Larry was given a deal to enlist in the army in exchange for having the charge dropped. Kathy apparently was heartbroken at the thought of losing Larry. That being said, after Larry left, Danny upped his game and the pair eventually became exclusive. So Larry was out of the picture. So while Larry was away, Danny got to play. Exactly. Larry was arrested after murdering five men and was sent to prison in 1964. Kathy was said to follow Larry's trial with her mother and was devastated when he got a life sentence. Danny continued to court Kathy and eventually moved in with her. She became pregnant, and despite her parents' disapproval, the two were married. For Kathy, though, Larry remained the one who got away, and she never fully got over him. Still having feelings for Larry, she wrote letters to her now brother-in-law while he was in prison. No way. Yes. How much would that fuel that feud? Oh, it does big time, because they're writing letters back and forth, and their love is growing for one another. So now Danny's got to one-up his brother. Right. At the beginning, Danny didn't know about the letters, but eventually he found them. Always being in competition, like you said, with his little brother, and I assume thinking he had won the love match against him, Danny was not pleased to find out that his wife was still pining for Larry. Oh, that would be such a blow. It really would be. And especially with your brother, who you've been fighting with your whole entire life. After this discovery, problems in their marriage began to rise to the surface and the couple fought more often. No kidding. Yeah. I don't see how that could end any other way. No, you can't really blame Danny in that situation. It's basically an emotional affair. Yeah. And then the rejection that you would feel again, he already feels rejection from his dad, but now he's feeling rejection from his wife because she actually likes his brother better. Right. And he would feel like I was just the default prize. That would be heartbreaking. It really would. 
It would be such a blow to his self-esteem, knowing that I really only got her because my brother was no longer an option. Yeah, that would be a huge blow to your ego. It would be. No one wants to be second choice. The fighting between the couple, who now had two children together, escalated to the point that Danny decided, one night in 1967, that he needed a break and some space from his family. Let me guess, did he go out and get milk and just never return? Well, kind of. He didn't say he was going to go get milk, but he did say he was going to go to Alaska. But he didn't go there. He hightailed it to Wyoming instead. Oh, man. Alaska's like my favorite place to dream about getting lost in. (laughs) That would have been great if Danny just did actually go to Alaska and got lost there forever. (laughs) We wouldn't have to talk about him today. But sadly, that's not what happened. Within a month of his arrival in Wyoming, Danny was arrested for assault and given a sentence of 18 to 24 months in prison. I also read in one report that he had attempted to abduct a couple of teenagers, but felt bad and then dropped them off at home instead. He has a conscience. At this point in time, apparently. Or maybe he chickened out. Hmm. And so now does Kathy write him letters? Actually, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) But she must have had a softened heart and so did he, because when Danny was released, he returned to his wife in Kalamazoo. Things were better for a while, but before long, their constant fighting resumed. Danny once again took his frustration out on an innocent person. Wow, she really has something for these bad boys, hey? Yeah. That's what turns her on? I don't know what it is about the Reigns brothers, but... As soon as they're in jail, she's like, ooh. Well, we do know that there's a lot of women who are attracted to people who are in jail. And even serial killers. Right. There is something about that bad boy personality that attracts people. Right. But to me, that's crossing the line of your average bad boy attractiveness. In November of 1968, now 25 years old, Danny set his sights on an 18-year-old woman named Dorothy King. Danny happened upon Dorothy in Battle Creek. She was working at a pharmacy, and he spotted her as she was about to leave work. He pulled out his gun and aimed it at her so she would let him get in the car with her. Danny's plan was to drive Dorothy out of the city and then rape her. I don't understand this. Where did this rape come out of? It's a good question, but his crimes do become sexually motivated. Maybe it was frustration with his wife, but more likely it was probably a sense of power, sense of control. Okay. That's usually, from what I have read, the driving force behind sexually motivated crimes. He would have felt really out of control in his life at this point in time. And so to have control over another individual would be paramount. Right. As disgusting as that is. Miraculously, Dorothy was able to escape the car when Danny took a wrong turn near the Kellogg Community College. I assume this meant he slowed down or maybe even briefly stopped to change direction and she was able to get out. This must have freaked out Danny because he threw away his gun and sped off. So was it like an impromptu thing or had he planned it? I think he just saw her and was like, yep, she's the one. I think he was probably thinking about it, but hadn't necessarily planned that it was going to be Dorothy. So he was already having these thoughts. That's my guess. That's interesting because that leads into more of like, it's just in his genes. Right. Yeah, these two brothers did not get the cream of the crop when it came to their gene pool, I think. Dorothy went to the police. When they investigated the parking lot outside of the pharmacy where Dorothy had been abducted, they discovered Danny's car parked there. He was still there? Well, he had taken off in her car. Oh, okay. And hadn't gone back to get his own yet. Dorothy was also able to ID Danny as the man who had kidnapped her. Danny pled guilty to erroneous assault and was sentenced to three to four years in prison. 
While incarcerated, Kathy gave birth to their third child. However, another child did not give her enough reason to stay with her husband, and so she served him with divorce papers. Danny was released on parole on February 17, 1972. So he served nearly all of his sentence. If I did math correctly, he got out nine months early, but within his sentencing. Having to start all over, Danny needed a job. And any guesses where he decided to work? A gas attendant? Yes, he chose to work at a gas station. And I couldn't help but wonder if this was a dig at his brother who targeted gas station attendants. Almost like a come at me? Yeah. I just felt like it had a cheeky tone to it. Mm -hmm. A month after his release, on March 19th, when he technically could have still been in prison, Danny would commit his first murder. Danny drove a blue Covert van. The shape of it reminds me of the mystery machine on Scooby-Doo, but most models look like they had windows all down the sides. It's the kidnapper van. We all know my knowledge of vehicles is not great. And I have another vehicle that I have to say the name of and I might get that wrong. Were they the ones with all like the carpet in the back and the bench seats? Oh, likely. While in the parking lot of a Topps department store, Danny noticed a 29-year-old woman entering the store with her 17-month-old son. She had no idea that Danny was watching her walk through the parking lot and into the store. This dirtbag decided to park his van next to her car and wait for her for over an hour. And this is why women get freaked out in parking lots and by those boxy-shaped vans. He carefully positioned his van so it was next to the driver's side of the woman's car where he knew she'd be entering. Like the side door of his van is right beside her driver's side door. Right. Oh, so creepy. It really is. This is definitely why they're called kidnapper vans. Yeah. Because that is what he's using it for. Danny sat in wait as he watched Patricia Houck strap her young son into his car seat on the opposite side of the car. When she came around to get into the driver's seat, Danny jumped out and threatened her with a knife. Patricia, in a frenzy, fell or maybe lunged into her car. Danny was able to pull her out of her car and get her into his van. Oh, that would be so terrifying. It would. Especially with your child in the back seat. Yeah. And he knew she had a child with her. Yes. He watched her go into the store and waited a whole hour for her to come out. A whole hour for him to make a different choice. Right. But instead rile himself up. Ugh. Once in the van, he bound her wrists in the front of her and then proceeded to rape her. All the while, her baby boy sat in the car next to them. Wanting to kill her, Danny began strangling Patricia. But Patricia was a fighter and managed to stop him from strangling her to death. She was literally fighting for her life. And I assume she felt like she was also fighting for her son's life. She would have had no idea what this monster would do to her son if he had succeeded in ending her life. During the altercation, Patricia managed to significantly scratch Danny across his face. In the struggle, both Danny and Patricia fell out of the van. I cannot imagine the pure terror she must have felt and how no one heard or saw what was going on. Was this like midday? It had to have been. She was out shopping with her son. So it was during business store hours. That's crazy that nobody else saw them. Nobody. Because this is more than a quick mugging or robbery. He literally had her in his van raping her and now they're fighting to the death. It would be so loud, you would think. Oh, I'm sure she would have been screaming. The baby was probably crying. Wow. He must have just lucked out that no one was around. It doesn't even seem like he's even thinking about getting caught. He's just driven. Right. Hyper-focused on what he wants. Mm -hmm. 
In order to stop Patricia from getting away, Danny pulled out his knife and stabbed Patricia in her back. He said about stabbing her, quote, It didn't seem to have much effect. So this human garbage pail said he twisted the knife in her back to do more damage. He then said, quote, That did it. As Patricia laid on the ground fighting for her last breath, her young son got out of the car after unbuckling himself and stood crying near the van. He could see that his mom was hurt and bleeding. Once Patricia had passed, Danny took her body and dumped it behind the building of the independent elevator company. What's he going to do with the little boy? Well, thankfully, he decided that Patricia's son was too young to remember anything, so he left him alone. He just left him out in the parking lot to wander around the cars. Yes. Some reports said that he left the boy at the crime scene in the parking lot, and others said he took him with him and then left him where he dumped Patricia's body. Either way, this little boy wandered around for the entire night. What? Mm-hmm. It wasn't until sometime the next day that he was found by a woman. How traumatic. I can't imagine. She noticed that he had blood all over him and promptly called the police. And some reports said that he led this woman to his mother's dead body, and then she called police. Considering he was described as being covered in blood, it is definitely possible. It would have been traumatic for him. Patricia's husband, Neil, had already reported his wife and child missing. He would have been so relieved to find out his son was found and so heartbroken when his wife's body was discovered. When his wife didn't return home from shopping, it was said that he knew something bad had happened and went to the police station well under the standard 24 hours. I always find it so eerie when people talk about just knowing all of a sudden that something bad had happened, like that there's this connectedness between them. It is fascinating. Because normally you'd be like, oh, maybe she stopped at another store. Maybe she's picking up a chicken for dinner. Like, who knows? But he said, no, he knew something bad had happened to her. Patricia's wallet was missing from the scene, so police felt like robbery could have been a motive. Sadly, they could not find any leads, and her case would go cold for a few months. Long enough for him to commit more murders, right? Exactly. In June, approximately three months after brutally murdering Patricia... Danny met a 15-year-old homeless and unemployed boy named Brent. Danny took pity on Brent and helped him find a job and a place to stay. He actually moved in with Danny and his girlfriend in his girlfriend's trailer. Danny was 29 at this time, making him 14 years older than Brent. It is easy to see how Brent would have looked up to the man who seemed to have it all together and showed him compassion and a helping hand. A man that had it all together. He was living in a trailer and had been to jail how many times? Had no relationship with his family. <laughs> it's true. You and I can see that. But for Brent, he was 15 and living on the streets. And Danny got him a job and got him a place to live. So in his eyes, Danny was all that in a bag of chips. I wonder if Danny took compassion on him because he reminded him of himself at 15 when he went to see his dad. Oh, could have been. Also for Danny, though, this meant he had a perfect, moldable, easily influenced partner in crime. You might have seen two names in the title of this episode, but if not, surprise, Danny had an accomplice, making this a couple killing case, which I find so ironic. Danny and Larry were both brothers who each became serial killers, but Danny found a different killing partner. Well, he never got along with his brother. Nope. So now he has a surrogate brother that he can get along with. Right. As you said, Danny and his brother were always in competition with one another, and like his brother... Danny did not have much self-esteem to speak of, 
so he probably relished in the fact that this young teenage boy was looking up to him. It was likely the first time he ever felt admired. And that's just my speculation. Makes sense, though. Mm -hmm. Which totally makes this a recipe for disaster. You can see how these two people would be drawn to one another, how they would each be feeling a need. So let me tell you a little bit about Brent. Brent Eugene Coster was born in Michigan on October 10th, 1956. Considering he was homeless at 15, I'm sure you can guess that his home life was not a good one. Brent's mother battled paranoid schizophrenia. It did not sound like she was getting the treatment she needed. Brent's father was an alcoholic with little concern for his son. Getting his next bottle took priority. They had similar relationships with their fathers. Absolutely. And I'm sure that probably bonded them a little bit. This type of home life fostered instability and the family had to move often. Finally, in 1972, Brent decided he had had enough and ran away from home. Brent's mother happened to be friends with Danny's girlfriend, and that is how they were introduced. It's a whole lot of dysfunction happening. Somehow, Danny was able to convince Brent that they would make a good team. At some point, he actually bragged to Brent about what he had done to Patricia. Brent was large in stature, even for a teenager. He was six foot six inches tall. People called him Stretch, and I am sure Danny thought that they could use his bigger build to their advantage. Well, he wouldn't have to struggle so much against women if he had somebody else to hold them down. Right. That is what my thought was, too. Because with Patricia almost overpowering him and getting away, he likely wanted a partner to make sure that that would never happen again. Right. And was Larry a bigger guy than Danny was? Even though Danny was older, was he the smaller brother? That I'm not sure of, but in the pictures, he does look like it. Hmm. It's just interesting that he's replacing him with someone like his brother. That's true, too. Like, if I had a sidekick and I wanted to be all powerful, then I would want to make sure that I'm the tall one. But I think he was freaked out a little bit because Dorothy had gotten away and Patricia almost did. So he's realizing, I need someone to help me out with this. Right. But that's good insight about it being like his brother. Danny suggested to Brent that they should kidnap a woman, rape her, rob her, and then kill her. And Brent agreed to give it a go. Tells you a little bit about his character, hey? Right. Yeah, that sounds like a fun Saturday night activity. Let's try it out. Yeah, as if it was me saying to you, hey, let's get pizza and watch a movie. And you're like, yeah, I'm in. It's bizarre. It is. The two put together a kill kit, which included rope, knives, and trash bags. And then they would drive around looking for potential victims. In their kidnapper van. Yep. Brent later said that they would talk about sex and killing women. And that one time they had even sat parked outside of a movie theater for four hours hoping to find a victim. So they were just out on the prowl. Unfortunately, these dirtbags would not have to find their first two victims to torment together. Because on July 5th, their first two victims came to them. And this all happens in 1972. Okay. On this day, Danny was working at the Sprinkle Road gas station not too far from the I-94. Brent was hanging around. They had already made a plan as to what they would do if the opportunity arose. Two unsuspecting 19-year-old women pulled into the station to fill up. One report said it was about 1.30 in the morning, so I assume this was a 24-hour station. Their names were Linda Clark and Claudia Bidstrup. Immediately, Brent ran to start filling the gas tank, while Danny popped the hood. Pretending to check the oil, Danny took apart a wire to the spark plugs so that the car would make a concerning sound when the girl started it back up. And this worked. The girls were concerned. Ugh. This is why girls need to know how to run their cars. 
But at 19, they were probably thinking, how lucky this happened while we're at a service station and there's these guys that can help us out. Oh, can you imagine the feeling of, okay, we're okay, and now we're not? No, I cannot even imagine. Because it's not like, oh, these guys walked up to them in the middle of a dark alley. No, they're stopping at a gas station. You would have that kind of level of trust. Or sense of security. Right. You're under the big lights of the gas station. Yes. They work there. You're not thinking that they're just waiting to pounce. No. Danny played the hero and told them to bring their car into the work bay so he could take a look at the issue for them. What a conniving dirtbag. Once they had them secluded, they both pulled out knives and forced the girls into the back of the car. Danny told them that if they were quiet, they wouldn't get hurt. He then drove them in the car to the back area of the station where it was dark. Danny and Brent tied up the young women. They would take turns watching over the girls and running out to help customers. While Brent was filling gas tanks in the front of the station, Danny was raping both Linda and Claudia at the back of the station, unbeknownst to the paying customers. Next, it was Brent's turn. He pulled Linda into Danny's van and raped her there. Danny then threw Claudia into the back seat of the car that she had pulled up in and told Brent that it was time for him to, quote, taste the medicine, meaning it was his time to make his first kill. Brent got into the car with Claudia and tried to strangle her with rope. Claudia fought back, and Brent, being only 15 at the time, was struggling to subdue her. Danny decided to help his protege out, and they killed Claudia together. And is Linda watching all this, or no, she can't see from the van? Because they had been separated at this time, right? Right, but I think it was all right together at the back. So I'm sure she did. She knew what was coming for her next. She had to have. She would have felt such terror. Perhaps with new confidence or a surge of adrenaline, Brent was able to kill Linda all on his own, also strangling her with a rope. Linda was placed in the back seat with her friend, and both were covered with a blanket. Brent hopped in the car to get rid of their sick handiwork. He drove out to a secluded area in the woods near Galesburg. He doused the car in gasoline and then lit a cigarette. He set the lit cigarette on the floor of the car and took off, not waiting to see if the car would burst into flames. After hitchhiking back to the gas station, Danny showed Brent their bounty. Two rings, one pair of earrings, some cash, and photographs, I'm assuming Polaroids, that he had taken of their victims. He keeps mementos. Mm -hmm. And robbery is just the icing on the cake for him. Mm -hmm. Linda and Claudia remained missing for the next 12 days, until their bodies were discovered by people who came upon an abandoned blue opal cadet while out on their motorbikes on July 17th. When they looked inside the vehicle, they found the decomposing bodies of two girls and quickly called the police. And I know technically they're women, but at 19 and as a mother of girls at a similar age, they are still girls in my eyes. They're just beginning their adult life. And so I mean, no disrespect by calling them girls. I'm sure to their parents, they still seem like they were children. Mm -hmm. Police traced the registration of the abandoned car to a man who had reported his daughter missing almost two weeks prior. He said that his daughter and her roommate had embarked on a road trip to visit her brother in Ann Arbor, but hadn't shown up. The other girl was the daughter of a police detective in Chicago, where both girls were from. The identities of both girls were confirmed by their fingerprints. Police noticed that the gas tank of the car was still full, so they figured that the girls had filled up the car just before their deaths, causing police to check out nearby gas stations. Both Linda's and Claudia's purses were left in the car, but had been emptied of money, suggesting to authorities that robbery might have been the motive. 
cause of death was not able to be determined with certainty, but the ropes left behind around their necks suggested strangulation as the cause. Decomposition also made it impossible to know if the girls had been sexually assaulted or not. Because of similar causes of death, empty wallets, and being bound with rope, police suspected that their deaths were connected to Patricia Houck's. They still didn't have a suspect, but the idea of a serial killer was emerging. So they made that connection right away. Right. And with one of the girl's dads being a detective, I'm sure that everybody was dotting their I's and crossing their T's on this investigation and trying to find whatever they could. Oh, I'm sure. Because it was one of their own. Right. In Kalamazoo County, there were now 12 murders that had taken place in the past eight months, eight of which were still unsolved. This makes me question if Danny was responsible for more murders than he is even charged with in the end. I honestly believe he could have been. It seems like he escalated so quickly to rape Mm -hmm. that I don't think that would be an outrageous assumption. That was my thought, too. Exactly a month after their double homicide, Danny and Brent were ready to strike again. On August 5th, they hopped in Danny's van and started looking for a victim. 18-year-old Pamela Fearnow was hitchhiking on the Western Michigan University campus. Danny and Brent spotted her and willingly stopped. Again, it was like she fell right into their cruel hands. Once she got into the van, they threatened her with a knife. Danny drove while Brent tied her up. He then covered her with a sleeping bag and laid down next to her until they arrived at a wooded area. Like he was just cuddling with her? Yeah, I don't know, maybe just keeping her down so nobody could see her through the windows. Such a creep. Oh, big time. These disgusting low-life dirtbags spent the next six hours taking turns raping young Pamela. When they decided they were finished, they tied her back up and drove her to a different well-treated area, this time near a lake. They gave her a bottle of wine to drink and made her sit with them while they drank beer. And I thought, excuse me, but this is not a party. She is not your friend. She must have been terrified. Like it was some kind of date that they were on? Yeah, totally delusional. Do you think she wants to hang out and drink wine with you when you just spent six hours brutally raping her? And she never found an opportunity to run? They kept her restrained most of the time. So sad. After the drinking, they took her to a third secluded area. When they arrived, Pamela began fighting for her life and frantically attempted to get the rope off of her wrists. Danny wasn't pleased, so he punched her in the stomach as hard as he could. Shockingly, this didn't stop her. She kept fighting. To stop her from screaming and fighting, they placed a plastic bag over her head and suffocated her. One report stated that they had strangled her with the bag, but they normally used rope for that, so I think they did suffocate her. Either way, they ended her life with a plastic bag. And I feel like this would be such a horrible way to die. I tried to Google how long it would take to die in this manner, but immediately all that came up from my search was suicide prevention, help numbers, and resources. That being said, I believe you can die within four to six minutes of not having oxygen, which is a long time in this type of situation. To try and fight your way out? Yeah. She would have been suffering that entire time, and it would have felt way longer than four to six minutes. Mm -hmm. Once she was dead, the men took Pamela's body and laid her on the ground away from the van. At this moment, Danny told Brent that he saw a police car. This freaked out Brent, causing him to run for it. On his way home, Danny was stopped by the officer in the cruiser that he had spotted. The officer checked his ID and let him go, just like his freaking dirtbag brother. That is so crazy. But it's not like they have a database connected to a computer in their car like we do now. No. 
But both of them were stopped by police officers, which just kind of blew my mind, that parallel. Right after murdering somebody. They must have been crapping their pants. You would think so. And that wasn't enough to make them stop, which is the crazy part. But if you remember with Larry, he was like, oh, yeah, I was just acted relaxed and no problem. Sometime after arriving home, Brent managed to get to a phone to call Danny for a ride back to the trailer. The next day, the killer duo went back to move Pamela's body. They dumped her body at the more secluded Morrow Lake area. Brent would later say that he noticed two ropes around Pamela's neck, and he only remembered them tying one rope around her neck to restrain her. It is believed that Danny had gone back and tied another rope around her, or possibly after Brent had run off. I don't know if he got a thrill doing this after she was dead, or if Brent was just mistaken. But she was for sure dead when they left her the first time. Or did he have to go back and finish off the job? Well, Brent had run away because he got spooked by the cop. So we're not sure what Danny did for sure after. Mm. But when they went back the next day, Brent noticed that there was two ropes around her neck, which he found odd. Necrophilia? I hope not. But the way he's escalating, I wouldn't put it past him. After this murder, Brent started to pull away from Danny. They were becoming friends off. I honestly think Brent had become freaked out and was starting to realize the gravity of their actions. Also, Brent later said that Danny wanted him to steal a car and take off to Florida with him. But Brent was scared that Danny was planning to kill him, so he tried to cut ties with his once mentor. Danny had instructed Brent to keep quiet about what they had done. However, either out of guilt or for whatever other reason, Brent, now back on the streets, began telling street workers what he and Danny had done. And I assume by the term street workers, the reports mean sex workers who worked from the streets. Okay. Little did Brent know that one of these street workers was a police informant. Again, almost exactly a month after their final murder, on July 4th, America's birthday, Brent was arrested. Brent was taken to the police station to be interrogated. And I'm sure he wastes no time turning over Danny? Exactly. They definitely did not have to press him for long. Brent sang like a canary. He told police all about Linda Clark and Claudia Bidstrup's murders. Him confessing makes me feel like he was feeling some sort of way about what he had done. I don't think it was sitting right with him, and honestly, how could it? Because he was only 15, Brent was housed in a juvenile detention center. Brent told the police all about his partner in crime, Danny Rains. Because of Danny's prior arrests, they already knew this guy was a dirtbag. Police acted quickly and arrested Danny later that same evening at his home. Brent also informed police about how Danny had bragged to him about killing Patricia Houck back in March of that same year. Based on Brent's testimony, Danny was initially charged with just three murders. When police realized that this serial killer, Danny Rains, was the older brother of Larry Rains, a man who was already in prison for being a serial killer, they were rightfully shocked. I don't know if I've ever heard of that happening before. I haven't. Not saying that there isn't a case like that? Yeah, there's lots of brothers that kill, but they kill together. Mm -hmm. This was definitely a unique situation. Not long before Danny's arrest, Danny's brother Larry was granted permission for his second trial on an appeal. Remember the one that he ended up pleading guilty to anyway. This meant, though, that both Rain's brothers were making big news in the papers, both for being murderers. So the trials went on at the same time. Larry was waiting for his second trial, and Danny had just been arrested. I wonder if his brother's trial or his brother's case being in the media encouraged or somehow influenced Larry to plead guilty because it would make you look that much more of a dirtbag 
if other family members have done other similar heinous things. Ooh, that is really good insight. I think you might actually be onto something because near the end, I'm going to tell you what Larry says about his brother. But I think you're on the right track there. As sorry as he may or may not have been, Brent kept an ace up his sleeve. He stated, quote, I have one more murder to tell you about, and that is Pamela Fearnow, who was hitchhiking on the campus of Michigan University. At this point, Pamela was just a missing person. They had not found her body yet and had no idea that she was deceased. It would take until October 18th, two and a half months after her murder, before Brent showed police where they had discarded her body. Being left in the woods, Pamela was pretty much in a skeletal condition. She was able to be ID'd, however, by her jawbone. Her body, by Morrow Lake, was only around a mile from where Linda and Claudia's bodies had been found. With the help of his attorney, James Hills, Brent made a plea deal on the basis of his cooperation. He would tell them all about Pamela and testify against Danny at his trials. Part of the agreement allowed Brent to be given the lesser charge of only one count of second-degree murder. Even though what he had done was so heinous, police felt like Brent was more of an accomplice and Danny was the bigger and more dangerous threat. I question if Brent would have ever raped or murdered anyone had he never met Danny, but regardless, he still chose to participate. I wonder if his age had anything to do with their leniency. Probably. After Brent's full confession, Danny now faced four first-degree murder charges. Brent was convicted of his second-degree murder charge for the death of Linda Clark. Three years after the murders, on July 21, 1975, he was sentenced to life imprisonment. His attorney, James Hills, petitioned the court to try him as a juvenile, but because of the severity of his crimes and his prior criminal arrest record, which included burglary and car theft, he was tried as an adult. Interestingly, at this time, the Michigan Supreme Court was reviewing its policies regarding juvenile waivers because there was no set standard yet just that once they turned 19, they would age out of the facility and move to an adult prison. That being said, his sentencing judge did tell him that many residents in the state of Michigan wanted the death penalty reinstated because of people like him. You can understand that emotion behind that mentality. Right. Danny's trials did not go as easily. He was claiming his innocence. What? Mm-hmm. I know how much you love that. So was he trying to say that it was all Brent? Yeah, we'll get into a little bit of it, but he was like, yeah, Brent's lying. I maybe had sex with the women, but I didn't kill them. Ugh. Gross. Take responsibility. Right? Just makes you a cowardly dirtbag. Mm-hmm. While awaiting his trials, he was housed in the same maximum security prison as his brother, <laughs> who was now awaiting his retrial before he had pled guilty. Danny was first tried for the murder of Patricia Houck in February of 1973. Brent kept his end of the deal and testified against his partner. Brent did not witness this murder. It had taken place before he got entangled with Danny, but his story of what Danny had told him matched the physical evidence in her case. The entire time that Brent testified against him, Danny acted shocked and appalled at the idea. Reporter Dave Hager wrote, quote, Rain sat at the courtroom table. He smiled to himself and shook his head as if he couldn't believe what Coster was saying. He's quite the little actor then. Mm-hmm. I just want to like slap that <laughs> smile off his face. <laughs> slap. Yes. They would have had to hold me back. The pathologist who examined Patricia's body testified of her brutal injuries. Dr. Daniel Glaster stated that the knife wound in her back 
was so vicious that it had almost penetrated through her entire body. Oh. Because remember, he stabbed her and then went in and was twisting the knife. He told of the many bruises and ligature marks on her body as well. David Metzger testified that semen had been found on Patricia's underwear. Kathy, Danny's ex-wife, also testified against him. Kathy stated that after Patricia's murder, she noticed a large scratch across Danny's face. He had told her he got it from doing some work for his mother and stepfather. Kathy also stated that on a date that coincided with one of the murders, Danny had been a no-show when he was scheduled to pick up their children for a visit with him. Mm. So it was like, sorry, kids, daddy was out killing people, so I couldn't spend time with you. Probably a good thing for the children. Oh, for sure. But the timeline is all matching up. Right. Danny's lawyer tried to discredit Kathy's testimony by calling her out for smoking marijuana and being seen by a psychiatrist. Because remember, this is the 70s when seeking help for mental health issues was viewed as you just being crazy. Such a sad time. Yeah. Perhaps one of the most damning pieces of evidence against Danny was a handwritten note that he had made and then tried to discard. A guard at the prison found a ripped up note inside Danny's toilet bowl. It indicated that he was looking to find a woman whom he could pay off to testify that she was with him on the night of Patricia's murder and that he already had a scratch on his face. Oh, he's trying to set up his own alibi. Yeah, he's very conniving. The officer found the note when Danny was in the shower and once reconstructed it read, quote, Do you know any married woman who could use $500 for taking the stand and saying she was with me on the night of the Houck killing? One who would have a reason to remember that, whatever the reason was, night, that will stand up in court and also remember that I had a band-aid on my left cheek and told her I scratched it while tearing down a garage. It has to be a Saturday night I was with her. She must be strong so the cops can't break her down no matter what they say or do. Also, she'll have to go to the newspaper office, the Gazette, and look in the past issues for the dates and all the back pictures of me so she will know when she sees me. Let me know as soon as you can, as all visits and phone calls in new jail are to be taped. If you know of anyone, at least get me her address so I can handle the mail through contos. The money will come when my feet hit the streets. Who was he writing this to? I'm not sure who exactly he was planning on giving this note to. To his brother? Because they're in the same facility right now, aren't they? They are, but... And his brother's about to get out? <laughs> Larry wants nothing to do with Danny. Oh. But for whatever reason, he ripped it up instead of giving it to him. Or maybe he handed it to someone, let him read it, and then ripped it up to try mm. and hide it. The reports didn't say who it was for. I did do the conversions of the $500 in 1972, and that is now worth almost 5000 Canadian. It's a cheap price tag for selling your soul. That's what I think for perjuring yourself and you could go into prison yourself. And what kind of married woman did he think he was going to find that would do that? Destroy her marriage saying, yeah, I was with him all night. <laughs> no, honey, you ain't that cute. And you're a murderer. On March 2nd, 1973, Danny was found guilty of second degree murder as well as first degree murder in the perpetration or attempted perpetration of rape. For the first charge, he was given life imprisonment, and for the second count, he was given life imprisonment in solitary confinement at hard labor. Both were without the possibility of parole, and were to be served concurrently, meaning at the same time. Next, Danny would be put on trial for the murder of Pamela Fearnow. This case made me so happy that they didn't stop at just one conviction. So well done, Michigan. This trial began in July of 1973, and again, Brent testified against Danny and admitted to all the horrible things they did to Pamela. Brent's testimony fit the evidence, plus he had taken police to the body. 
Again, Danny tried to figure out a way to prove his innocence. Two men from where he was being housed testified that Danny tried to convince them to lie for him on the stand. (laughs) It didn't work the first time. Why is he still trying it? He's grasping at straws. Richard Fee stated that Danny wanted him to say that Brent had told him he lied about Danny being involved in Pamela's murder. He also wanted him to testify that Danny and this girl just had consensual sex and that it was Brent who snapped and killed her when Danny left to go get more beer and wine. Lee Keaton also testified that Danny had asked him before his first trial began to find someone he could hire to murder Brent before he could testify. Oh, guess he's not feeling very fatherly towards him now. Nope. On July 21st, Danny was convicted of first-degree murder, and on July 30th, he was given another life sentence. So that's three now. Thankfully, we're not done. Danny would still have to face the double homicide of Linda and Claudia. Oh, they keep going. They do. That's what I mean. This made me so happy because I hate it when they only convict them of the one. Mm -hmm. Brent again testified and told the court that they had even tested out the lighting at the station to be able to carry out their plan. They turned off certain lights so they would have that dark area. For this trial, the prosecution had a lot more evidence. A blanket that belonged to Danny had been found with the girls' bodies, and the rope used to strangle and restrain them matched the rope that Danny had given to his stepfather after the murders. It's like he didn't think anything about getting caught. Like he's not trying to cover his tracks at all. Not really. Just ditching the bodies is as far as it goes. And even that isn't very well done. No. Well, I think they both had thought that the car had caught fire, but it hadn't. Oh. They didn't go back and check, obviously. Right. Which was good because then it left all this evidence. After reviewing all the incriminating evidence against him and likely feeling like what was the point with already having three life sentences, Danny pled no contest in August to two counts of second-degree murder. He was subsequently given two more life sentences. When questioned by a reporter about his convictions, Danny responded, quote, There's really nothing to say. What a dirtbag. What about, I'm sorry, I regret my actions. Well, he doesn't. Before we end, you know I need to give updates. Plus, there is more drama between the two brothers and their lifelong love triangle to tell you about. No, Kathy comes back? She comes back into the picture, but I'm saving that for the end. Let's start first with Brent Coster's update, or Big Bird as he was later listed as his (laughs) alias. Oh, wait. Yeah. He went from Stretch to Big Bird? Yeah. I assume he got that name in prison, as he is now not only six foot six tall, but also weighs 250 pounds. So he's a big guy. And is he bright yellow, too? <laughs> no. Maybe the jumpsuits were yellow. I don't know, actually. <laughs> Could have been. While in prison, Brent took part in multiple sex offender rehabilitation programs. He managed to earn himself a law degree and pretty much stayed out of trouble during his entire incarceration. Throughout the years, Brent applied for parole, but was consistently denied. That is, until just a few years ago. Big Bird is out. Mm-hmm. Brent had entered the prison system only 15 years old. After 48 years behind bars, the parole board took into consideration his expressed remorse and the young age at which he was incarcerated and allowed him a parole hearing. When Chief Assistant Prosecuting Attorney Scott W. Brower learned of the possible parole hearing, he wrote a letter to the parole board asking them to not let Brent out of prison. He was clear in the prosecution's opinion. Part of that letter read, quote, Mr. Coster's crimes were horrific and terrifying. His actions were that of a soulless, cold-blooded killer. 
We can only imagine the sheer terror his victims experienced as he toyed with them before killing them. He continued to point out that his sex offender risk assessment still put him at risk of reoffending, basically saying that even a low risk is too high of a risk. So he firmly did not believe in rehabilitation. No. The parole board felt differently. And at the age of 64, Brent was released from the G. Robert Cotton Correctional Facility on January 21, 2021. He will be free from his parole on January 21, 2025. Brent has a lot of parole stipulations to follow, including not using the internet without agreement, not possessing any sexual stimulating material, no alcohol use, submitting to polygraphs, staying in the state, having his home and possessions searched at any time, being GPS monitored, drug tested, no weapons, getting a job, and much, much more. Hopefully that's all enforced. It sounds good on paper, but we know there's a lot of times that it's never enforced. That's true. And hopefully he will prove to be a contributing member of society. I feel like parole is really such a gamble. But so far I have not heard of him doing anything to break his parole, but he hasn't been out that long. Brent has stated that he understands that he deserves to die in prison but also said, quote, I would like to be given the opportunity to serve the rest of my remaining days in a free community rather than die in prison. I realize what I did. I realize that it is horribly wrong, but there are circumstances that got me involved in this. And one of them is, I mean, I know it's rare to blame the co-defendant, but I was, well, shall we say under the influence, not, I know what I did. I accept responsibility for that. But if it was not for my co-defendant, I would not be sitting here. Which is how you felt earlier. Yeah. But he still did do it. Mm -hmm. And 15 is old enough to know that what you're doing is wrong. Right. But then that leads the question, is 48 years in prison long enough? And I don't know the answer to that. Brent admitted to his part in the murders, but he said about when it happened, quote, I was hesitant, but I'm knee deep into this crime. So kind of I was in it and had to just keep doing it. Like he had no other way out. Right. Well, he did say he feared for his own life, so you would feel compelled for your own preservation to keep on doing what Danny wanted him to do. Right, and acting like, oh yeah, this is great. Mm -hmm. Keeping up appearances. Right. As I mentioned, Brent always continued to express remorse. At his hearing, he said about his victims, quote, It must have been horrible. I know that. I can't even begin to realize the pain and suffering that they went through. The only thing I can compare to it is when I lost my father and my mother and the pain and hurt that I went through. But I can imagine it would nowhere compare to what the families went through. And he's right. It wouldn't have been even close to the pain and suffering those women and their families went through. So I guess time will tell, but I seriously hope he just fades into the background and doesn't even hurt a fly for the rest of his life. Hopefully. Hopefully the parole system got it right this time. I just really hope we don't find out one day that he rapes and murders another woman. That would be horrific. Because mm -hmm. we've seen that happen. Danny, on the other hand, consistently claimed he was innocent. Conrad Hilberry co-wrote a book about Danny and Larry. In preparation of this book, he interviewed both men. He said that Danny didn't seem to be as psychopathic as his brother, but was just as dangerous and maybe even more cunning. He said about Danny, quote, My own impression is that he is urgently and persistently rethinking the past, going over the events in his mind and rearranging them, changing them so that the story comes out the way it ought rather than the way it was. So he twists the story. Yeah, he's convincing himself of his own delusions. Hillberry also points out that he thinks Danny may have started killing to keep up in competition with his younger brother, just like you guessed. 
Larry made big news in 1964 when he committed his murders and was arrested, and then was again in the news spotlight in 1971 when he was granted a second trial. Coincidentally, Danny started killing in the early part of 1972. It all seems to match up. It really does. Danny spent years fighting his convictions and researching the legal system. In 1979, he argued that getting two convictions for Patricia's murder was considered double jeopardy. The judge agreed and dropped the second-degree murder charge and its life sentence attached to it. By 1981, he managed to get three of his four convictions lowered. He still got life sentences, but now all three of those life sentences included the possibility of parole. The only charge he was unsuccessful at changing was Pamela Fearnow's murder of first degree. This one charge would make it so he would never get out of prison. Good. However, many people were worried that he would have to spend his entire life in prison. He had convinced other humans with actual brains that he was wrongfully convicted because of Brent's false accusations. See, that's the problem when there's no confession. Yeah, but there was evidence and Brent (laughs) knew all of these things that he shouldn't have. I have zero doubt. Yeah, I don't have any doubt about this one. No, and he had tried to pay off people to lie. He was trying to kill Brent from inside prison. No. At age 78, on January 29th, 2022, so not that long ago, Danny died inside the Lakeland Correctional Facility in Coldwater, Michigan. His cause of death was said to be natural causes. He remained behind bars for 50 consecutive years. It's a long time. Mm-hmm. Good. I wish he lived longer. You might think that I'm done with the updates, but remember, I still have the juicy gossip left. Let's rewind a little bit to when Kathy and Danny divorced. Remember, he was a dirtbag, and she was secretly writing love letters to his dirtbag brother who was already in jail for murder. And she had just had her third child. Right. With Danny. Yes. After Danny, Kathy married a different man and had a fourth child. This marriage only lasted two years. Because she was still writing to Larry? I think she still was in love with him. Eventually, Kathy reconnected with Larry. Larry had four serious relationships during his time in prison. That shouldn't be allowed. It shouldn't. I know, we both hate that. (laughs) It seemed like his and Kathy's timelines never lined up. However, this changed when the two finally got married on his 31st birthday, March 22nd, 1976. No way. They did. What did Danny say about that? (laughs) I'm sure he was not happy. She took on the last name Steppenwolf to match her new husband. She had been a Mrs. Reigns already, after all, when she was married to his brother. As a reminder from last time, Larry had changed his name because of Danny's crimes. He was vocal that he would kill his brother if he ever got out of prison. The two last spoke in the late 1960s. Larry felt like his brother was evil and ruined their family name. What? Yeah. Because that's so different than what he did. Well, he wasn't so upset about his brother committing murder, but it was the vicious rapes that he felt were deplorable. So he's like, yeah, I murdered too, but you raped women, and that makes you terrible, and you ruined our family name. Okay. As you know from this episode, Larry is still in prison. He gets to do lots of stuff in there and isn't described as a model prisoner. But he still gets to meet with Kathy? Well, rumor has it that by 1979, Kathy and Larry were divorced, and Larry married a different woman the following year. Oh, so he wasn't too hung up on Kathy then. No. But legend has it that Kathy never stopped loving him. So in the end, I guess Larry really did win against his brother. And that is the case of a dirtbag brother who may have been inspired to kill to keep up with his little brother 
and a 15-year-old kid who was easily convinced to brutally rape and murder young women in cold blood. Twisted Dirtbags, Danny Rains, and Brent Coster. That is crazy. How do you explain to your kids that I'm going to marry your uncle even though he's in prison? Well, your dad is in prison for raping and murdering women. I'm going to marry your uncle who murdered a bunch of men because that's not as bad. And I always loved him since I was like 15. Just seems so messed up. It really does. But then the family dynamics of those two brothers' lives were messed up. They really were. And Kathy just got pulled into that whirlwind. Along with Brent. Yes. Him too. That was crazy, Christy. And what a unique thing to find. Two brothers that were both serial killers but didn't kill together. It does make you think, what was going on with their DNA? Yeah. Was it nature? Was it nurture? It's both. It's It's always always both. (laughs) Listeners, let us know what you think. Go to our social media and leave your comments. Yeah. Let us know if you think that Danny started killing just because his brother had and he had to kind of one up him. It seemed to be there was always constant competition between the two. There was. But where there isn't any competition is between me and Melissa. I'm as excited as you are to hear her case next week. Until then. See ya. Bye. Hey, Melissa, how you doing? I'm still proofreading my episode. (laughs) I keep like moving. I just like popped my knuckle. (laughs) I thought you snapped your bra strap. No, it was my my finger. (laughs) (laughs) Take a drink with your very cloud water or rainbow water. My rainbow. But I just saw another TikTok where a girl sipped up an earwig had come out of her big straw. Was it still wiggling? I don't know. Earwigs are gross. Danny's mother did her best despite... Sorry, you have to say that again. I was burping. Oh, we're on a roll today. (laughs) Oh, sorry. Forgot to put on silent. (laughs) Always forget to let beeps. Melissa's popular. She's gonna be popular. Not really. You're popular to me, babe. (laughs) So what happened? Well, if you listen to Larry's episode, (laughs) that's my next line. I can't remember anything. <laughs> Near the Collig Kellogg. Near the Collig Colla? Kellogg. Ow. What's wrong? <laughs> Why say Oh no. She's in excruciating pain and laughing. <laughs> what can I do? I'm gonna fall off my chair. No. <laughs> Don't bump the mic. Don't bump the mic. You weren't doing literally anything. Just no. sitting, looking at me. <laughs> Do we need to stop and take you to the hospital? (laughs) But you have to help me drive by looking because I can't turn and shoulder check really well. (laughs) Because I'm falling apart too. Okay. I think it's better now. Danny pled guilty to erroneous. 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 Danny pled guilty to erroneous. Erroneous. It's Ronnie. (laughs) Erroneous. Not Ron. Okay. Danny pled guilty erroneous Erroneous. (laughs) that's like burglary for me (laughs) that he is making sure that everybody is crossing their eyes and dotting their teeth (laughs) i I was like i'm just gonna let her keep saying it (laughs) for his for this for this 
That was a good ending. We are rocking that one. Hey, we're live, pal, and we'd love for you to come check out our podcast, Tales from the Estate. Each week, we talk about our top five favorite somethings. My beautiful wife, Caitlin, likes to share all sorts of random facts. Yeah. Did you know that cows have accents? We did now. But we also review all sorts of snacks and other great things. And so if you love everything random, I think you'd enjoy Tales from the Estate. So come check us out. Yeah. Okay, thanks. Bye. Come on a journey like no other, where you will discover many rogues that will lead you to a happier, healthier, and more stress-free life. And the beauty is, you don't need any vacation time for this adventure. The journey will come to you. Join Avery Rich on your very own journey into yoga. Along the way, she will demystify yoga poses and guide you into a yoga posture or short sequence, all in less than 15 minutes. You have nothing to lose but stress. The Journey into Yoga podcast. It's not for people who like yoga. It's for people who don't like yoga. Follow or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at AveryRich.com. Another Sound Off Media Company podcast.